The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Converted, half-hearted, half-committed? What are the consequences of being half-converted? What happens to a half-converted Christian? And what happens to a a half-converted nation? Welcome. You're listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Half-converted Christians are one of the ugliest pictures in all of the Christian church. A half-converted Christian, according to the age-old definition established back in the 1600s, the half-converted condition of Jonathan Edwards' church, It is those Christians who expect to have the full benefits of the Christian church. They expect to have the Lord's Supper. They expect to have Christian marriages. They expect to have Christian burial services. They expect to be able to come to church and masquerade as converted Christians. But in fact... They have no real testimony of repentance, of conversion. Oh, yes, they said, we will accept Jesus. We love Jesus. But in fact, they have no actions that would testify that they are sold out. They are half converted. They hang with the world, and they hang with God. They are as comfortable expending all of their time and energy, sitting in front of the television, drinking in the vileness and the darkness of the world. Some of you are very offended. You've communicated with me and say, Pastor, you've just lost it this week. You're talking like a crazy man this week. And then I have had a precious Methodist pastor write to me and say, Pastor, thank you. Somebody has to stand up and say it as it is because our Methodist church is going to be overrun the acceptance of homosexuality and homosexual marriages. We have opened the door. And many good Methodists who will say, no, we cannot allow homosexuals to be married in our churches. We cannot have bishops that are homosexual. But they open the door wide to the vile entertainment of America. They will go to the movies. They will 
deeply involved themselves in football and other professional sports, wasting their time, numbing their brain. No time in the prayer closet, no nights of intercession, no tears for what's happening to the dying Christians that are being killed with genocide in Iraq or Afghanistan. Numbed out, half-converted Christians fill the churches of America, including most of the pastors. They're but half-converted. They have no real testimony of righteousness. They do not understand the most basic elements of spiritual warfare. You understand, spiritual warfare does not even begin until the person makes an absolute commitment to serve Jesus Christ, and to walk in righteousness. And when that Christian makes that utter commitment to be sold out, to walk in righteousness, to be filled with the likeness of Jesus, to utterly turn away from the world, to say no to wickedness, to say no to the casualness of the Christian church in America, Spiritual warfare doesn't start until a person makes that covenant. And then that person is faced with execution by the devil. Or that person must understand that they must go to the promises of God and begin to war with the devil over those promises and stand by faith. But many in the Christian church have no spiritual understanding. They walk as the Gentiles do. They walk as the non-Christians do. Everybody's comfortable and happy with them. There's no rebuke from their life of wickedness and sin. I mean, one dear man, he said to me, Pastor, I don't tell people at work that I'm a Christian. I just I just live my life, and and my life is so different than their life, then they should come and ask me what's so different. I said, well, how many people have you brought to Jesus in the last 30 years in your government office? Well, none. Whoa, is that because there's no difference between you and them in the way you respond with anger and bitterness and pride? And he got very upset with me. And so he left the National Prayer Chapel, and he went out and started joining together with the church where he went out and passed out tracts and and tried to evangelize on the street, a painful introvert. But it looked like that would be righteous for him. How many people did he save that way? None. Because he has no power of the Holy Spirit flowing in his life. He has not determined to walk righteous before God. He can fight with his wife. He can fight with those who disagree with him. He has an attitude about him. An arrogant attitude. A harsh attitude. We're in trouble. American churches are in trouble. Some of them are very prosperous and have golden tongue speakers and wonderful entertainment 
and even people who are coming to Jesus. But not really converted, just spray-painted on the outside with Jesus. On their inner heart, their inner being, they're still half-converted. Because they love the things of the world. And the church's inclusiveness, bringing everyone in, it is time for the church to become judgmental. What do I mean by that? I don't mean cursing people. I mean exercising judgment about righteousness, drawing some very firm boundaries about what is right and what is wrong. I'm a pastor. My wife passed almost six years ago, and I've been asking God, would you bring me another partner to walk with me for the work of the gospel ministry? Well, I can tell you, the Lord will bring me that partner, and I'll share that story with you. He will bring me that partner, but I can tell you right now, I will not involve myself in premarital sex. I will not walk in the way of the world. I am going to walk in righteousness with integrity before God. I have no choice. Because I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I am not half converted. I am totally sold out. There's a story. Sun Tzu's, or Sun Tzu. He was a Chinese warlord. He was a general, and he was a military genius. He came from a war clan who made weapons in China. Sometime, probably around 500 B.C. He has a well-known book, The Art of War been studied in detail by business people, by military leaders, by coaches and politicians. Well, we as Christians need also to take a look at that book because we are involved in the greatest war in all of human history. Sun Tzu said, if if you know your enemy and you know yourself, in a hundred battles you shall never perish. He said, if you don't know yourself and you don't know your enemy, you will perish every time. We face an enemy today. And many of you listening to this broadcast have not yet taken this war seriously. We must know ourselves. We must know the sin of our heart. We must know the true condition of our life before an almighty God. The Lord will not answer the prayers of a people who are walking in wickedness before him. We must know ourselves. We must must look carefully through the eyes of Jesus at the life we live, not holding on to favorite idols, but recognizing what those idols are. And in the name of Jesus, 
cutting them off. If we don't, we will perish. We will die. We will be executed by the devil. He will take us into a place of utter destruction because we will not engage in honest, true spiritual warfare. Sun Tzu also wrote of being fully committed in referring to what he called death ground. Sun Tzu said he needed to get his soldiers to fight beyond what they were capable of in order to defeat an enemy that was much larger than them, to work together together as they had never before worked in unison. And in order to accomplish that, they had to be on what he called death ground. What he meant was that when an army has no route of escape, when they are against a mountain or a river, when they are surrounded with no way out, they will achieve things beyond their commander's dream. And so often Sun Tzu would deliberately place his soldiers in a compromised position when necessary, with their backs against a wall, cornered. And he said his soldiers would fight ten times as hard when escape was not an option. In other words, Sun Tzu is saying, that when you have no choice but to be totally committed, this is when you prevail. Today, we Christians in America, in the Western world, are not yet on death ground. At least we imagine that we are not. We have not seen that we are in a place where we must stand for our faith or be swept away and die. This is not true in other parts of the world where Christians are on death ground and they are dying for the faith in Jesus Christ. More Christians have been killed in persecution in this millennium, in the past 15 years, than ever before in the history of the world, than the entire history of the world. Christians in America do not see themselves on death ground, as we have too many other options other than Jesus. We have routes of escape to go back to our old life. For now, the day is coming when that escape will not be possible, and we will be faced with the reality of either distancing and leaving Jesus Christ or being persecuted and killed. Yes, in America. A young child in Iraq with a knife to his throat who faces death yet refuses to renounce Jesus, that is death ground. As long as we provide ourselves a route of comfort a route of escape where we can wax and wane in our faith, come and go from the church, blow in and blow out of your faith. You will not enter into the fullness, as Smith Wigglesworth used to put it. Now, this is so vital for me because 
I'll ask someone, will I see you in church Sunday? And they'll say, oh, no, Pastor, I'm sorry. I have to work. You have to what? You have to work on Sunday? Church, is that unimportant to you? Oh, Pastor, I'm sorry, I can't come to church. We have a baby shower on Sunday. Really? In fact, most Christians in America treat their Christian faith in a similar manner to going to their favorite grocery store or their favorite restaurant or or their favorite place to work out, to exercise. Everything is fit around the comfortableness of their life. Everything is placed in balance on their to-do list. Is that you? Is that how you operate? Well, Pastor, I, I couldn't get to church on time because there was a lot of traffic. Really? How is it that a person who's coming twice the distance you're coming can make it early? Evidently, you did not consider it important enough to make a covenant with Jesus to prepare and to be in the house of the Lord at the appointed time. Think Jesus is going to sit on his hands and wait for you to show up? Are you kidding me? Do you think the mighty God of heaven is pleased when you push him away because you have other items on your agenda that you see as more important than Jesus? Do you really think you can sit and watch that game for hours and then have no time for prayer and the reading of Scripture? And then you expect that your spirit will be stirred by the Holy Spirit and you will be drawn into accord with Jesus and you will be welcomed into the heaven above? Are you kidding me? Do you think you can spend your money on all of the things of the flesh and of this world? and not put your resources into the work of the gospel? Do you think Jesus will be pleased with you? Are you kidding me? Do you think you can walk in all of the wickedness of our culture and still be received by Jesus? You must be kidding me. When are you going to wake up and see reality for what it is? He must be first. You must be on death ground. With no avenue of escape, you are on your way to heaven. Herman Cortez is another example of this same issue. Herman Cortez was a a Spanish sailor and soldier. He helped in the conquest of Cuba. After his early successes, serving under Diego Valquez, In Cuba, Cortez wanted his own glory and riches. He was born in Medellin, Spain in 1485 to a second-tier nobility, meaning his family was not of royal blood. He was not a part of the ruling class. Cortez was determined to change this. So in 1519, this 34-year-old Cortez 
gained the permission of Valquez to invade Mexico and conquer the Aztecs, as it was known that there was more gold and silver in the New World than anywhere else on earth. Cortez was known to say, I have a disease in my heart, and it can only be cured by gold. I want to tell you, I had a disease in my heart, and it could only be cured by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It was not cheap blood. It was the blood of my Savior. I cannot take that blood casually. For the disease of sin was eating out my heart. It was killing me. And if you, in your wicked imagination, do not understand that if that blood does not make you righteous and totally turn you away from the way of the world, then you are a fool and a dying man or woman. And if your church does not lift up and call you to repentance and rebuke you for a worldly life, if your church does not rebuke you for sitting for hours in front of the television and the movies and the Kardashians and all the rest of the worldly stuff from the lust of money, from the comfortable lifestyle, to call you to service to Jesus Christ, if your pastor does not do that, you have a wicked pastor. And you have a wicked church that's half converted. And then you have a wicked nation because the pulpits of America are not burning with righteousness. And then you have a half converted nation that selects a wicked president. And your freedoms are taken. And you have a Congress and a Supreme Court and a president who bring every kind of wickedness into the land. And the Christians say, well, we've got to be understanding. No, I will not be understanding. And I will not be politically correct. I'm going to exercise my judgment and say, that is wrong. It is sin. Stop it. Confess, repent, get right with Jesus before you die. Cortez wanted to go for the gold. Now, Spain also wanted Christianity in the New World to rid the continent of the pagan human sacrifices, which they called barbaric. So Cortez mortgaged his entire life savings, all of his property, and went into debt further to finance the mission. Now, just a brief note. Great men of God have done the same thing. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, they were fabulously wealthy with the tin mines in Europe. They used their whole treasure to fund the New Testament Christian church for the first 15 years of its existence. There would be no church today if these wealthy men had not invested all they had. 
What have you invested in the kingdom of God? Oh, you've given 10%, and you think that does it? Well, you have your beautiful paneled homes, and, and you have your wonderful cars, and you have your wonderful lifestyle, and you have your wonderful savings. What do you need savings for if America crashes? And what are you going to do when you look at the reality? Let me get this for you quickly. I want to give you some information. A traitor, a wonderful man of God, sent this message to me. Since January 1st of this year, the U.S. stock market has lost in value $1.1 trillion in just 10 trading days. $1.1 trillion gone. The worst start for the U.S. stocks in over 100 years. Oil is now down to $30 a barrel. And they're saying that it may go to $20. Coal companies going bankrupt. In fact, I have that right here. Arch Coal had their stock drop 99% under President Obama, as did Peabody Energy. Arch Coal filed for bankruptcy today, stock down 14% a share. You understand what that means? You think your money is safe in the stock market? You think your retirement is safe in the stock market or in the bonds? My advice to you is invest your treasure with heaven because where your treasure is, there is your heart. This broadcast, for example, needs to be going out over the nation, warning, calling to repentance, calling to righteousness. But many of you who listen, hang on to your money. You have no heart to see the gospel work go forward. Breaks my heart. What are you going to do when the stock market collapses and your retirement money is gone? What are you going to say then? Are you going to say to Jesus, I wish I had invested more of my resources because they belong to you anyway. I wish I'd invested them in the work of the gospel, but instead you thought you'd feather your nest. Brother, my sister, we're in such trouble. Cortez, he mortgages his entire life savings, all of his property. He goes into debt to finance the mission. Have you ever gone into debt to finance the work of the gospel? I don't advise you to do that, but it is death ground. Cortez led the conquistadors into Mexico, 600 in fact, a mere 600 men to conquer an empire with a population of half a million, with at least 100,000 Aztec warriors under the god-king Montezuma. Montezuma had declared himself a deity. The common Aztec citizens were not even permitted to look directly at him. 
And after some, some months of war, Cortes was able to successfully defeat some of the tribes under Montezuma's rule, and he gained much treasure, gold, and gems. When the conquistadors realized just how vast the Aztec kingdom was and how big their city was, more than half the men wanted to go home. They had their treasure. They had enough to take care of themselves and their families for the rest of their lives. Understand that in 1500, London had a population of about 40,000 people. Venice and Naples each had around 100,000. The Aztec capital, now known as Mexico City, had a population of 300,000 men. It was more than twice the size or more than any of any city the conquistadors had ever seen. Now there was a mutiny in Cortez's military. And he made one of the boldest moves in history. It would change the new world and establish the Spanish Empire and bring Christianity to Mexico and what is now Latin America. This one bold move showed his men they would have no choice other than to be fully committed or die. Cortez ordered all of their own ships to be burned. Burn the ships, he said. With 600 men, 20 horses, 100 trained killer bull mastiff dogs, and the best weaponry the world had ever seen, Cortez and his men were now committed to either conquer the Aztecs or die. There was no going home. There was no going back. There was no escape. There were no options. Prevail or die. See, we Christians like to hang on to our ships. We want to keep options open. We want to keep one foot in the camp of God and one foot in the camp of the devil and pretend that we have a committed Christian life. But instead we are merely half converted. A form of godliness with no power. Now Cortez was able to turn a a kingdom tribe under Montezuma against him. And the once powerful group of natives signed on to fight with Cortez against their ruler. Why would they do that? Because Montezuma taxed them. And the natives thought it was unfair that they had to pay portions of their crops and livelihood to a central power who did nothing for them. Cortez picked up around a thousand warriors to fight for him because they felt they were being overtaxed. History is repeating itself once again. By 1521, the 36-year-old Cortez conquered the Aztec Empire, and Mexico became New Spain. In the end, the Spanish muskets, the portable cannons, the armored dogs with which 
the Aztecs considered as demons, the horses, which the Aztecs thought, thought were dragons, fully armored men in Spanish steel swords, they all proved too much for the Aztecs. But it was the lack of an alternative, <clears throat> pardon me, for Cortez and his men that ensured the victory. Outnumbered 100 to 1 or worse, Cortez was victorious because he burned the ships. There was no going back. He went on to tear down the pagan isles and put up crosses and churches throughout what is now Mexico City. And he carried home a ship full of personal gold, silver, gems, stones, and other treasures from Mexico. Sadly, the gold riches and glory Cortez gained was not enough to make him happy. He was never able to be a part of the upper ruling class of European nobility that he so desired. Being the equivalent of a multi-billionaire never satisfied him. It was said that he was snubbed by high society in spite of his great victory. But I can tell you this, without any hesitation, that if you engage in the battle of the Christian church, onward Christian soldiers, if you will begin to sell out and burn your ships, if you will take a stand for the gospel, You will be brought to the throne of God. <clears throat> you will sit beside Jesus Christ, and you will not be snubbed. You will instead be, be brought into the kingdom of heaven as the bride of Christ. Cortez can teach us much. When we cut off all routes of escape, any victory is possible. And I ask you boldly, will you cut off your routes, your routes of escape? Will you commit to never going back to your life of darkness or lukewarmness or being half converted? Or do you want those avenues of escape, psychological escape? Do you want those avenues that allow you to pleasure yourself in the wickedness of the world? You want those open doors in your life through which the devil can flow so that you can escape from God and go back to normalcy? I can tell you, the founders of America the leaders of the Continental Army were not half committed. Ninety-five percent or more were Christian men. They rejected a tyrannical government, oppressive laws, and overly burdensome taxation. They risked life and limb and their fortunes. They fought for freedom. They signed the Declaration of Independence. They declared themselves to be engaged in high treason against His Majesty, King George III, 
I declare myself today to be in high treason against the devil and the powers of darkness, and I have cut off all avenues of escape. Every penny, every ounce of energy, every resource I have is committed to the fight against the powers of darkness for your salvation. Will you make that same covenant? Our founding fathers wanted to give birth to a free nation where all men would have the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There was a clear tipping point where they finally said, Enough is enough. They looked at this vast land full of resources, a country full of young children. The average family in the American colonies had five children. And they thought, what is the future to be for our children and our grandchildren? They refused to live under tyranny. They refused to allow their children to pay taxes to what they felt was a central government that did not have their best interests at heart. They rejected being lorded over. Our founding fathers went all in. They doubled down. They went on the death ground. They cut off all routes of escape. England had the most powerful military in the world. They had the most powerful military that had ever existed up to that point in history. They ruled vast kingdoms the world over. It was said the sun never set on the British Empire. And the Americans had nowhere to run if they lost. There was nowhere to escape. At least 25,000 American patriots died during active military service in the Revolution. About 6,800 of these deaths were in battle. The other 17,000 recorded deaths were from disease, including about eight to 12,000 who died of starvation or disease brought on by the deplorable conditions as they were prisoners of war, most in rotting British prison ships in New York Harbor. Some estimates, however, put the total death toll at about 70,000 men for the Continental Army. The British, they sustained heavy losses, well over 50,000 casualties. It was desertion that really hurt them. During the war, over 42,000 British soldiers simply deserted, just giving up and saying, we can't fight these people, we're going to become one with them. This was the tipping point the Continental and the French Navy needed. It was God intervening. The financial cost to the Americans was devastating. The United States, United States spent $37 million at the national level, $114 million by the states, and $400 million paying soldiers' wages. $551 million total dollars in the 1770s and the 1780s. What a staggering amount of money. People say to me, 
In fact, I got a text just recently saying, Pastor, by saying we're going to receive an offering to cover the cost of the broadcast, you are saying God is not with you. Are you kidding me? The work of the gospel is going to cost a great deal of money. That money should not be used to build great edifices. It should not be used on entertainment and lifestyle. It should not be used in the ways of the world. It should be used for the work of the gospel, to redeem the lost, to confront them with the message of hope and glorious righteousness in Jesus. It costs money. well over $3,000 a month. I've been asked not to give the exact figure, but way, way beyond $3,000 a month. Just for this little broadcast, 9000 or more, just to do FM one day or seven, five days a week. Huge amounts of money. America was birthed at the cost of men's lives and men's homes. Many Americans went bankrupt funding the American Revolution. I'm going to open the phones. We have a few minutes left in this broadcast. I'd like to hear from you. You understand what I mean by death ground? You understand what I mean by burn your ships? Have you sold out to Jesus? Or are you half converted? If you're half converted, I'd be happy to pray with you today. Our phone number here in studio is 877-534-0780. That number again, 877-534-0780. Some of you have been very upset with me this week because I have not simply taught Scripture. But instead, I've gone to other issues. I've dealt with other issues. I want to tell you, the personal piety of the Christian has to be brought into the marketplace. It has to be brought forward so that we can look honestly at what it means to be a Christian and what it means to take this nation back for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's being stolen by darkness and by evil. Good. I'll take your call. Welcome, Sister Rose. What would you like to share? Pastor, can you hear me? I can hear you. <laughs> Hi. Um, Pastor, I've been there, done that. I know what it is to be half converted. I was baptized um, and believe because of the baptism, water baptized, and because of the baptism, I, I thought that I was saved. But no, no, to be converted is to a complete change. And I remember, um, I think it was, a little more than a year ago, you taught us on the radio ministry 
said, when a man or woman, and I wrote it down, when a man or woman comes to Christ, the power of sin is broken. They must walk in righteousness or they are not saved. And yes. that's uh, John, let's see, First John chapter 3, verses 9, um, confirms that with how you broke that down. So, Pastor, I know what it is to be half-converted, and I am no longer half-converted. I've given my life fully to Christ, and I am so free. I'm free, and I'm happy in Christ. I'm happy to be one of his and I drive around with my car tag saying, don't sin. And the other car tag says, obey God. And people are not in agreement with don't sin. Except that everybody sins, but no, all sins are choices. All sins are choices. All sin is voluntary. Voluntary choices, yes. Yes. Rose, thank you. God bless you today. Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. Our phone number is 877-534-0780. What would you like to say? This is this is your time. This is your time. 877-534-0780. Are you half converted? Or have you sold out for Jesus? passage of scripture I was going to read it today Ephesians the fourth chapter let me start with verse 17 and please call you're welcome now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity but that is not the way you learned Christ. Unfortunately, that is the way many of you learned Christ. You were never rebuked for your sin. You thought you could just say, I accept Jesus. No, the question is, will Jesus accept you? He will not accept you as you continue to walk in wickedness before him. That's delusional thinking. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, that is, through desires that you are fooled by and you justify, and you say, this is not really that serious. I can sit down and feast on the wickedness of the world. I can take into my heart the vileness 
I don't have to turn aside from all the darkness. A little bit's not going to hurt me. And besides, what's the harm? The harm is it will dull your mind. It will seal and sever your heart from Jesus. Like a hot iron searing and hardening you. Many of you are seared and hardened by sin. You've never wept over your sins. You've never been heartbroken over the lack of devotion to Jesus. And if you have been, did you turn from it or did you go find comfort in the world? belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. I want you, my brother, my sister, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, not make-believe, not, not pretend righteousness. The scriptures say, in true righteousness. Not make-believe righteousness. Not saying Jesus loves me unconditionally. He does not love you unconditionally. If so, he could not send a sinner to hell. And we would believe in universalism. That's not taught in the word. It's unfailing love that God has for the sinner who repents, who turns from wickedness, who walks in holiness before God. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. I'm sometimes puzzled because I'll talk with a man or a woman who has all the correct theological answers, but there is a casualness about their spirit. There is a, there is a commonness about their speech. There is no fire in their belly. There is no conviction in their heart. And I wonder why not. Well, I can tell you why not. Because there are doors open in their heart to darkness. And their heart is being seared by the darkness of the deceitful desires that he, they have bought into. And so there's no fire. There's no Holy Spirit presence. This must change. We are a half-converted people and we must burn our ships, or America will die, and the judgments of God will destroy this nation. I invite you to go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You'll find there the place of our meeting at the All Saints Anglican Church in Woodbridge. We meet on Sundays at 12 noon. You're welcome to come. But if you come, understand you're going to be convicted of sin and you're going to be called to walk in righteousness and holiness. It's not a, not a time of entertainment. It's straight up. If you come, you'll meet Jesus there. Holy Spirit will be present. So go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. Let's pray together, please.
Lord Jesus, I know the only possible way revival can come to America is if you send your Holy Spirit to bring deep conviction of sin. I pray, Lord, now that you would send your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that you would open the windows of heaven and come like lightning and fire to the modern church of America. I pray, Lord, for the pastors who will stand in the pulpit, that you would rebuke every pastor who preaches prosperity and wickedness and jokes and casualness, that you would put such a spirit of urgency into the hearts of the pastors that they would begin to burn with righteousness over this nation. Lord, cause men and women to give whatever is necessary to, to bring forth a cry of righteousness for America. Lord, I trust you and my eyes are upon you and I plead your mercy for us that we would burn our ships in the name of Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley, the pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. God bless you, my brother, my sister, with righteousness and holiness. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. Present you blameless before the presence of his glory.